0: The first two or three years, it was just an uphill battle that I was not prepared for, and we didn't even have a product because we had to build it ourselves for two years. I was running around with foam models, <laughs> telling people what this technology that nobody had ever used in the sector could one day do for the sector, and it, it was very tough. People looked at us in um, in very condescending ways sometimes, at least in yeah, very surprised ways.
1: Welcome back, everyone. My name is Rowena Luke, and you're listening to Aid of All. In this space, we'll be hearing the firsthand accounts of people who have dedicated their lives to fighting poverty or delivering health care. People who are experimenting with the idea, can technology help us do this better? And as we learn about their inspiration and fears, their doubts and triumphs, my hope is that we can also piece together a few lessons learned for those of us trying to do the same. Today, we welcome to the show, Sebastian Manhart. Sebastian has recently concluded his role as COO of Simprints. Simprints is the world's only nonprofit biometrics company focused on the last mile. The conversation you're about to hear falls roughly into two parts. The first traces the eventful six years that Sebastian had at Simprints. We start with a bunch of scrappy kids studying in Cambridge and an idea. And we trace that over the years to the organization today, which has reached well over a million individuals across 12 countries. We cover the ups and downs, the friends and the enemies that were created along the way, as well as the risks and successes. And part of what you'll hear in this story is the rise and the popularization of digital identification in the aid sector. The second half of our conversation dives deeper into some of the nuanced and tricky issues around digital ID. How do we strike the balance between the work of institutions and the needs and rights of individuals? How have the currents of change shaped the way that this technology was introduced and how it's being taken up? And where do we go from here? We start off with Sebastian's reflections on the early years of Simprints.
0: To be honest, thinking back, it was just a beautiful time because, because we were so idealistic and naive. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think, I think that's that that's really helpful when you're trying to get something off the ground because if you if you know everything that there is to know at least a fraction of it you would never try.
1: <laughs> oh. And so,
0: for me, if I think back, it's just you know we were a bunch of students, five mm-hmm. six students or just graduate graduates, and um, we just had this idea that with you know our own efforts and a bit of money, but we had very little in mind, um, <laughs> we could you know solve what is called the uh, identity bottleneck so essentially the reality that there's over a billion people around the world who do not have any type of formal identity mainly people in uh, poorer regions of the world Um, and we thought that we could develop technology that would support service delivery organizations governments NGOs and many others to uh, to help these people and to provide them with uh, essential services so yeah it was a it was a it sounded very simple at the time Uh, we realized uh, very quickly that it wasn't going to be that simple.
1: I asked Sebastian, what inspired you, as a young person interested in working in aid and development, to join a biometrics company? And I learned that Simprints didn't actually start out as a biometrics company.
0: None of us was passionate about biometrics, huh. right? Like, that's a means to an end. Interesting. So if it had been any other technology, we would have done it the same way. The mission was always to um, increase transparency and accountability in global development. Yeah. That, that was the mission, right? And there are many ways to achieving that. We noticed that um, one of the major factors that led to the lack of accountability and effectiveness was uh, the lack of accurate data. And when you get into accurate data, there's, again, there's many ways you can do it. But we saw that unique ID was one of the major drivers of that. Because without unique ID, you can't connect the dots between all sorts of initiatives and programs that are happening. In every country that we work in. And that's how we got then to, okay, if we need unique ID, how are we going to achieve that? And biometrics seemed like potentially the best way, but there are many ways to prove unique identity. Biometrics just in our view, happens to be the most effective. But that's how we got to biometrics, which was, as you can see, a several step process. We didn't start with biometrics.
1: Fascinating. What were some of the dead ends were some of the things that you learned in that journey over the first few years that you were with Simprints?
0: ah uh, so many um <laughs> probably the first major one was at the time we thought that we were just going to build essentially an an interface to allow NGOs and governments to utilize existing biometric technology within huh. existing mobile data collection platforms that abundant in our sector. So you weren't going to use hardware at all? No, no. We thought, you know, we just buy a bunch of scanners that supposedly, (laughs) according to marketing materials, have 100% accuracy. We're just going to create some sort of software link between that hardware and some tools like, you know, ComCare or OpenSRP or other data collection tools in the field. And that's Mm. all that we need to do. And we're done. But then this was a major reckoning for us. We learned the hard way that um, marketing materials of Western biometrics companies um, meant very little when you were working in rural Nepal or rural Zambia, uh, huh. to the point that, you know, 100% accuracy on marketing materials was reduced to literally sometimes single digits in the field.
1: Were they just lying?
0: Eh, eh, lying is a big word. They, they. <laughs> I mean, they, they okay. it, it was true, but in very controlled environments with very western white male populations right uh, like this is the reality that most biometrics it's starting to change but historically most biometrics was built by western companies with western data sets which are heavily biased and i mean this is something that now especially with facial recognition is almost a common fact you know MIT has released very popular uh, papers on this that have gone into the mainstream but at the time this was before the whole you know uh, cambridge analytica privacy backlashes that have created much more oh. focus on this so at the time um what governments were doing literally like nigerian government is a famous example but probably more than 30 governments in in africa have used western biometric technology for example for elections and the reality is they had so many issues and that can lead to huge then you know, during an election, if technology breaks, you have real problems. And um, so this it's, I'm not saying these companies are lying because they did run tests and publish probably real accuracy scores, but they were run in indoor, sterile, controlled Western environments with Western mm. technology. And so mm. when we took that to the field, it just completely broke. And that's when yeah. we realized, OK, this is going to be a multi-year effort to just build something that nobody has dared to build so far because there wasn't a market for it. A lucrative, profitable market, and that's when the whole mission became a bit more complex.
1: That makes a lot of sense, Sebastian. What was your time in Simprints for those first few years like? What are some of the <laughs> the major events that helped to shape your thinking around around the product, or around digital identity, or around the marketplace?
0: I mean, the most the the initial years were really <laughs> just about getting any type of traction. Yeah. At the time, we were. This this might seem different now because biometrics and unique ideas becoming is quite in high demand now in our sector at the time. I remember going to the first global digital health forum and, um, just people were looking at me like an alien, like what was this guy (laughs) trying to like, tell us about biometrics in development, what, and it it was, it was crazy. Like the first two or three years, it was just an uphill battle that I was not prepared for. (laughs) And we didn't even have a product because we had to build it ourselves. For two years, I was running around with foam models, oh, wow. <laughs> telling people what this technology that nobody had ever used in the sector could one day do for the sector. And it, oh, it was very tough. People looked at us in a um, very condescending ways, sometimes, at least in yeah, very surprised ways. But things started to change, I would say, in 2017, 18, um, and pretty much going hand in hand as well with sort of this increased focus on uh, scandals that happened in our sector. Um, mm-hmm. But also with unheightened uh, awareness for, for privacy uh, and the need for ethical solutions. And I think mm-hmm. that's when we were really, we, we hit a wave when we found that, okay, now suddenly demand is growing because people are aware of the need for this technology. And at the same time, people are skeptical of most providers because they want something that adheres to very high privacy standards. And that's when work started become, to become much more fun for somebody who had to sell like myself.
1: That makes sense. What are some of the major public scandals that happened around that time that you think sort of incited this growth of interest?
0: Without specifics, if I just read sort of the Daily Mail of 2017 or 2018, in the UK, um, there there were many aid scandals, right, uh, of misappropriated funds. And I mean, one example that immediately comes to mind was um, in Uganda, there was, I forgot the exact numbers, but for example, it was reported that It was something like 300,000 fake refugees that were registered. And the reason is that very often in these programs, um, funds are allocated by the amount of people that are supposedly reached or going to be reached, right? So if you inflate the numbers of beneficiaries, you receive significantly more funds. And that is obviously a major issue if those numbers are self-reported.
1: Now let's provide a little bit of color to Sebastian's example, because it's a good one. In 2018, a government inquiry discovered that 300,000 refugees we thought were in Uganda didn't even exist. That's more than 20% of the overall refugee population of Uganda, which itself has the most refugees of any country in Africa. Why did they inflate this? As Sebastian points out, everyone is incentivized to do this because if you have more refugees, you'll get more aid, you'll get more funding. You'll get more money. And to be clear, those at fault, yes, included people in the Ugandan government who were dismissed. But there were also allegations of foul play from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, and the United Nations World Food Program. Now, it's complicated. To say whether these allegations were true or false but what is true is that it revealed many management and data issues within these relief systems and it makes it clear the problem is not just within uganda the problem is throughout the aid system that we have in place one of the fallouts of this scandal was that the state minister for relief and disaster preparedness yes that's a role immediately ushered in the use of biometrics for all refugees across Uganda. This was the era when biometrics started to become much more mainstream for emergency response. But let's go back to our conversation with Sebastian. He goes on to discuss how biometrics also support another hot topic of our times, vaccines.
0: The discrepancy between reported and actual vaccine coverage, even for standard vaccines like measles, can be as high as 50, 60%. And that is just a crazy number because then you have countries that supposedly have 100% coverage for measles vaccines. Suddenly there's a measles outbreak and everyone's asking like, how did this happen? Then (laughs) you start doing the investigations and you see that actually half the people have not received the vaccine. And what do you do then? It's a bit late, right? And so these types of things have come up more and more. um, And that's, I guess, what has given some momentum to the need for getting this unique ID right at the beginning not retrospectively.
1: Right. That makes sense. In those years where you were carrying that foam, the, the foam prototype around, was there anything that you needed to keep the faith as it were? You know, like there's something about a knocking on that door, which is for hardware, which well, you need to do the manufacturing, you need to do the testing and the quality assurance. And it takes years sometimes to play it all out. How you kept motivated and kept, kept it up even knowing that the product itself hadn't existed yet. I mean, I know every business has to do that, but I'm curious if there's anything on your side that kept you going.
0: The early supporters who believed in us kept me going. And especially the ones that were close to the problem. Like for me, it was, for example, one of our off second client and uh, probably our biggest client to date um, is uh, BRAC, uh, world's largest mm. NGO based in Bangladesh. Yeah. And um, I remember fondly, Uh, that they're head of the health program, uh, Kausa Afsana, she, she was, she's not there anymore with BRAC. um, But she was a huge believer from the beginning in what we were trying to do. And to me, this meant the world because I'm not a public health professional. But if I have somebody who is running a health program for literally tens of millions of Bangladeshis, and this person is in a room with this bunch of students, that with hindsight, we're, you know, massively naive and idealistic, as I said before. But <laughs> this woman was like, OK, you don't have this yet, but we're going to work with you to get this done because we need this and nobody else is taking care of this.
1: Awesome.
0: Um, and that really kept awesome. us going because wow. um, it meant that they were they were trying that we weren't just doing something for the sake of it. But there were people who actually believed that we were solving a, their problem. Yeah. Um, and there were a bunch. And yeah, um, yeah, that's awesome. And I think those really gave us a lot of energy and hope.
1: That's incredible. I wish I could see her <laughs> talking all those years ago. You talk a bit about—I mean, you even mentioned as you were talking about the work and the things that you've discovered and learned over the years. I'm sure after a couple of years in this space, you and Simprints came up against the various ethical concerns around digital IDs and biometrics. For you, how did how did that learning come about? You know, was there any any moment in time where um, you faced an ethical quandary, or, or you and Simprints together had to navigate? some of the ethical issues that arise in biometrics and digital ID.
0: Yeah, this is a topic very close to my heart. And at Simprints as well, um, I was in charge of uh, our privacy section for five years. And it's something that I'm very passionate about. And I think um, what's really tough about biometrics and unique ID is how polarizing it is and how how strong the feelings it evokes are in people. And this has led to some very difficult confrontations even at times i i'll never forget you know we are this nonprofit biometrics company trying to not just do things well but also drive the whole biometrics sector slowly in the direction of the better of better standards and better practices and even i i got yelled at on stage right like I, i i had i had some people who yeah because as soon as you talk about and i understand where people are coming from don't get me wrong when i when you talk about collecting highly sensitive data which biometrics is from very vulnerable people in very volatile environments i totally understand where people are coming from and there needs to be a cost benefit analysis done on a case-by-case basis that justifies it and that's what that's why you need an ethical company because if you know we had probably four out of five requests at simprints were turned down by simprints because they just didn't fit the bill you know it was the cost benefit or the risks were just not justifying the use of biometrics but for me it was tough to see that even us even we were getting challenged in such an aggressive emotional way in the media on stage and so that that was tough oh man but then the, the real challenge i mean leaving that aside because that's at the end of the day that's something you have to deal with but that's noise what counts is what we're doing in our programs mm-hmm. and there are the biggest challenges when you move from minor projects with ngos um, to major projects with government, because when uh-huh. you work with government, the topic of sovereignty comes in, right? Like they, in the best huh. case, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but in the best case, yeah. the minister of health holds all data, uh, in his, uh, PC under his desk, right? Like it, uh-huh. just as an example, which is yeah. highly insecure, and so you're <laughs> starting to get confronted with all these data security concerns when you're working with go- governments. Fascinating that are almost you can't fix like there's no so, there's no perfect solution so then mm-hmm. you have to make decisions of how can we influence a gov- how can a small uk based tech non-profit influence how a ministry of health in a major country operates it's very yeah. difficult
1: sure.
0: and also how can we um, actually minimize the risk uh, to the beneficiaries upfront before signing a contract and getting this right honestly like we've spent Countless nights on this, um, because it's it, it's almost impossible. But you have to do it if you want to work in this space.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I I hear you. Just to bring the the particular conflicts to sort of unpack it for our audience. You know, let's let's imagine a scenario. You know, you're working with a woman in Bangladesh. You know, a mother who's getting food aid, and you want to register on a Simprint's, uh biometric device so that she can get mm-hmm. food aid. Like that sounds that sounds innocuous. Why were these people yelling at you for trying to track this woman, trying to get her aid? I mean,
0: again, I, I fully understand that identity has been used historically to commit atrocious crimes, starting, you know, genocide against the Jews in Germany. Then Rwanda, 1994. Now, huge concerns around, you know, what, what would happen if the Rohingya had to go back to, to Myanmar and the Myanmar government or military could suddenly use highly, much more effective unique identifiers to track them down. Like, I understand where people are coming from, right? Like, this is, these are serious concerns.
1: Can I tell you something scary? Just four weeks after Sebastian and I recorded that conversation, it happened. A database containing the fingerprints of almost a million Rohingya refugees was shared with the Myanmar government. This is a government accused of genocide. They've killed thousands of people from the Rohingya Muslim minority. Nearly a million people have fled the country, fearing persecution and violence. And then, on the other side of the border, in Bangladesh, we have the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, trying to help these refugees. They register them, they take their fingerprints, they give them some food and other aid. And because they're working within the country of Bangladesh, they share this information with the government of Bangladesh. And then somewhere along the line, Bangladesh shared it with Myanmar. Imagine what that means for a family that is running for their lives. The Myanmar government now knows their fingerprint, this piece of identity that's attached to you that you're never going to leave behind. Now how far are you going to run? Will you ever stop running? Suddenly the promise of technology in this picture becomes a lot more sinister. This ethnic database is faster to access, easy to scale, In the hands of the right aid program, we could do a lot of good. But in the hands of the Myanmar government, the consequences could be devastating.
0: When somebody collects biometrics, I think the question of what happens to that biometric image or record is the right question. Who gets access to it? Will it be shared? How is it stored? How is it encrypted? Was consent given? These are exactly the right questions. And in many programs, this is not adequately addressed. So I I think a genuine skepticism towards the use of biometrics in international development is actually the right approach. Um, that makes sense. But then there also, it needs to go hand in hand with an openness towards solutions that are more ethical and are trying to do it the right way. Because if you do it the right way, I do think the benefits that we can talk about are, are clearly outweigh the, the danger. Um, yeah. but, in, but unfortunately, we haven't always gotten it right in our sector. And that's why people have
1: <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. very strong reactions towards it. That makes sense. I'd love to hear about how the role you're playing in the solution. How are you working to move the agenda forward in terms of being able to leverage the benefits of this while also avoiding the pitfalls? And I
0: think there's a a couple of things that need to be done. Uh, First, you just need to get the plumbing right, right? Like you need to make sure that whatever solution you build, and this is the easiest step, is actually as secure as humanly possible. And there are some pretty clear best practices that have to be followed there that are not always followed in our sector right but that that's the easiest step because that's data security it's pretty clear what the gold standard is just do it then the next step is um what you actually do in the programs and this is where humans come into the equation that's when it gets complicated right but what we've just you need to make sure that the programs are actually successful to provide good counterexamples examples to all the bad examples that already exist and that people have in mind and so here, this has been a constant fight because, especially with funders, because a funder using biometrics or unique ID thinks that they're going to buy a bunch of scanners or a bunch of software licenses, and that's it. The reality is, for example, you need to probably invest as much in not just training, but also community sensitization as you need to spend on technology, right? Like, and that's something that is crucial if you want to make it a success. So that's the second thing that we've always focused on, and I would recommend to anyone is just really getting the human side right. And the final one is advocacy. And this is something why I spend, especially now, but um, even while it's Simprints, I spend a lot of time in places that are operating above Simprints, more on an industry level, because we need to you know, create best practices, principles, frameworks, use cases that have worked well and share them with the industry to increase pressure on everyone who's doing it wrong. Um, So there's, I think, a lot of work that needs to be done on the advocacy side uh, to make sure that we we change this perception.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I'm interested to hear, you talked about how you have a, a technical entrepreneurialism spirit. Looking at what's happening with Simprints and its evolution in the marketplace, Obviously, Simprints itself as a social organization has a strong ethical mandate and has lots of materials out there already about its ethical approach to identification. And as these markets grow, as there's more wealth in India and there's more wealth in Africa, do you think there's, there's a possibility for the private sector to come in for, for another organization that's less ethical than Simprints to come in and take a less ethical approach in manufacturing uh, biometric scanners?
0: Yeah, and that this is already happening. And by the way, I should be clear that um, I spoke about the scanners because that was the early days. Today, mm-hmm. uh, most, even what Simprints builds, but the biometrics industry as a whole is w- moving towards uh, software-based camera, smartphone-camera-based solutions. So, that makes um, sense, particularly with COVID. It, exactly. So most of it is, you know, smartphone-based these days. Yeah. But you're seeing it already. Um, The sector that the private, the area that the private sector has already been quite involved in is humanitarian aid. So they're actually, mm. especially if you think about the WFP, the World Food Program, if you think about UNHCR, uh, they've already worked with major for-profit biometrics companies for over a decade because the market was already profitable enough for these companies to, to do so. Now, the interesting thing is they're moving into global health and that's, that's a first and that's because huh. of COVID. So suddenly, huh. massive budgets were released that made it uh, appealing for, you know, conventional biometric organizations and also identity organizations like MasterCard to move into what was historically a sector that they would stay clear of. Um, and so, yeah, we're seeing a lot of organizations coming in here. They're starting with higher profit use cases such as uh, now COVID, um, health insurance, but there's nothing preventing them from at some point also moving into routine health delivery. Huh. And I think that is concerning. Yeah, And I also, I mean, I don't need to give examples, but how this stuff often works is um, you have a, com- a company from country X, prime minister or president from country X talks to you know a recipient country, and their president and literally tells them, yeah, you know these 300 you know million that you're getting in this aid program, it would be really good if you hired the company from our country to implement it. This happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, tied aid, yeah, is still. I mean, I think every country
1: does it everywhere,
0: <laughs> and with biometrics, it's it's really. It's really awful how often you hear that governments start procuring from the top for profit biometric Mm. technology and identity technology because of these dynamics. And you can imagine that that's not the best solution, nor the most ethical solution. Um, And it's a huge concern I have
1: for sure. Interesting. Do you think that government has a role to play? Again, looking at the market and how it's it's not just imprints working in this market anymore. Do you think that government has an important role to play?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's why on that's why I've moved to government. Oh,
1: let's talk about that.
0: I've seen more and more that, and what I found really difficult to witness is that um, a lot of the programs that we work in, they are heavily influenced by major political decisions uh, that happen usually in more powerful nations. And in COVID times, this has become particularly prevalent, right? Like, yeah. and it's not uncommon that you're, contract uh, to work in a certain place. I mean, UK now FCDO has cut 30% of their budgets and massive programs in tons of countries are now just stopping because it has been a political decision in the UK, right? So this stuff happens all the time. And um, I've been very concerned about these dynamics and I've been wanting to get closer to those decisions because mm-hmm. I see the impact they have on our sector and on well-being in general of, of the human human race. um. Mm-hmm. And with identity, it's it's similar. Um, I see that a lot of the decisions that are taken in Europe, for example, uh, will have an outsized impact on how identity is going to be governed um, and utilized uh, in other countries, maybe in five years, maybe in 20 years, but definitely at some point. Mm-hmm. And so now is a good time for this quite fast emerging topic to to be shaped.
1: That makes sense. Was there any particular event or impetus in your life that caused that caused you to switch back to politics? Or did you just wake up one morning and thought, okay, now I'm going back into big government.
0: Back to push and pull. Um, (laughs) I mean, push factor last year. um, Running a social enterprise in 2020 was absolutely excruciating. And I think most social entrepreneurs will testify to that if they're still around in in terms of their companies, hopefully. And I've seen a lot of really bad behavior. I've seen the worst behavior of the last six years all last year.
1: When we talk about bad behavior in 2020, there's so much to talk about. But let me pull out one particular story, which is relevant to what happens with Sebastian. In addition to his work with Simprints, Sebastian is an advisor for ID2020. ID2020 was founded in response to the Sustainable Development Goal that states, We want to provide a legal identity for everyone by 2030. For those of you that are listening to this podcast and running a program where you're tracking people, you're probably wondering, okay, well, how do I do that ethically and effectively? ID2020 provides those resources. It's got a host of practical guidance that you can use to make sure that you're approaching it the right way. Like a lot of the digital standards that are out there, it has been built with inputs from a lot of different private sector actors, Accenture, Microsoft, Cisco Systems. Clearly, these actors have their own interests as well, but maybe by working together, the idea is that they can come up with something that's better than the sum of its parts. When Sebastian talks about bad behavior, I would guess he's talking about what happened in 2020. That year, AD2020, this small policy nonprofit, became embroiled in a host of conspiracy theories around COVID-19. You know those stories about how Bill Gates is planting microchips in people? Yeah. ID2020 went from being a relatively unknown operator to the subject of thousands of hostile media and social media postings, to the point that they had to call in the FBI. They were receiving death threats for the work they were doing. This wasn't the only thing that drove Sebastian away from this sector. He talks about government decisions and funding decisions. But you can imagine how this kind of controversy would reverberate outwards and affect the people working behind the scenes, like Sebastian.
0: That, that really pushed me out of the sector um, when you see just the misalignment of incentives and the, the blindness for their own power that um, occurs in our sector. And then the other thing is, at the same time, <laughs> I mean, like many, I've been very um, felt very disenfranchised in the last couple of years by global uh, political you know, trends that have been happening. But I see a, a, it's been I see crazy things... what's
1: going on around the world.
0: Exactly. But I see things turning. Right. Like I see um, in in the U.S., obviously, there was a promising election, um, but also in other countries in Europe, I see a lot of very promising signs that people are young people are getting activated and are willing to to shape the future more. And in mm. Germany, there's a major election happening this year. And major, <laughs> I say that, you know, Angela Merkel after 16 years is going to. Um, leave the chancellery and there's Whoa. even talk of a potential green chancellor, which would Whoa. be unheard of
1: that, I, uh, taking I, power can't in even Germany. imagine. Wow.
0: And so it's, it's something just so money. It's uh, end of 24th of September. And it's such a monumental okay. event that I was like, okay, I'm already being pushed out of this sector and there's good reasons for me to switch to German politics yeah, we should and talk again in October. opportunity, <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, I decided to make a switch early enough to be able to shape some of what is going to happen uh, yeah. in Germany and in Europe in the future.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, many friends of mine moved out of the aid sector so they could work in politics after leading up to the recent American election. Uh, and that, you know, <laughs> you could definitely understand why why those kinds of moves were made. Can I ask a question about... About government and digital ID, particularly given yeah, sure. given your move and such, um, and it's about it's it's just something that I don't uh, that maybe that I haven't quite seen played out. And I'm curious to hear how how you've seen this play out. When I look at ID 2020 and some of its principles, there's this business of digital identity being personal, like it's owned mm-hmm. by an individual, they control it. But a lot of the positive use cases for identity is you know, government or aid-run programs. You know, for aid distribution, for relief, et cetera. How do you? How does one balance uh, this? This on the one hand, this pillar of personal identity, versus versus a government database that will actually meaningfully use this data to aggregate millions of people in a country.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> this is something I'm incredibly passionate about. And in fact, my role now in the Chancery is to work on what is called self-sovereign identity. And it's exactly huh. what you're talking about. And let me quickly explain, I'm because so this curious. is so. Right now, context. I think we live in, frankly, a data anarchy, right? Like we spent the last twenty huh. years, especially in Europe, in the Western Hemisphere, giving away data with no idea of what the hell is going to happen with that data. And businesses have created, you know, unicorns uh, by taking advantage of that yeah I don't think we can go on on this path forever. <laughs> I think we're it's it's not in our interest, and it's led to so many problems, including manipulation of elections and tons of other societal issues
1: yeah I mean it's crazy. It's completely unregulated the way that these completely. international tech companies work beyond country borders, even when and, they're and they're and they're bigger and more powerful than many countries, which is insane to imagine what they're going to do
0: and so I think Europe is interesting because europe is especially because these companies I mean, we know who they are, are not based in Europe. And Europe is taking a very strong and I think progressive and desirable position towards both antitrust cases, but also, frankly, towards regulation and data. Mm. And when it comes back to digital identity, um, there is a very clear path that I believe we have to take in the future. And that's a path towards self-managed or called self-sovereign identity where individuals manage all their identity data. And what does that mean? That means your driving license, your passport, but that also means your banking ID, your um, Amazon ID, your Facebook ID, Hmm. your gym ID, whatever it is. All Hmm. these IDs need to be fully under your control in a very safe encrypted place. And whoever wants to have any access to any of that data at any point needs to get your consent explicitly every time for each piece Hmm. of data. And that is technically this SSI self-sovereign identity has been around for around three or four years. Huh. And um, Germany, interestingly, is the first country in the world where the chancellor, the head of state is saying, this is what we're doing in our whole country. Oh, wow. Um, and that's why I, that, that's why I joined this this project, because for me, it's completely mind blowing that finally, um, a head of state is saying, okay, we need to do something about this. Um And And you could uh, set an example
1: for other countries to follow, which would be incredible, you know, like once governments are also herd animals and once they see one government do it this way, then others could follow.
0: And it's also, you know, think about it from a data security perspective. I mean, there's so many uh, privacy breaches all the time that you lose track of it. And because so-called honeypots are created of data, right? Where like if a hacker gets in, they can suddenly have access to tens of thousands and millions of pieces of data in one go. Whereas what happens with SSI, for example, is you only, if you hack a phone, you only get access to the information that is on a single phone and you, you just, mit, you reduce the appeal for hacking massively. So um, there's a lot of benefits to it, but obviously the reality is um, that this future of identity, which I'm now working on and which I'm incredibly passionate about, requires uh, smartphones and uh, cool. people who own their own smartphone. This is the only way how you can implement at least this type of future, um, and in our sector we are a long way away from that. But it is changing. It is changing, but I think in many places it will. This this is what I'm saying. You know what? what mm. th- that's exactly what I meant earlier. What we're doing in Germany now, for example, or in Europe, I think will happen in many places in 5, 10 or twenty years. So leading the way now is very is going to have a powerful impact on the sector in a couple of years. But for now, when we talk about digital identity in aid, in development, it still relies heavily on centralized, government-led identity, which has massive issues. And I'm quite worried about it, but I still think there is not really an alternative in many places. And we still need to get identity right.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And Sebastian, having gone through these ins and outs and having people yell at you on stage and you know, winning those, winning your first contract and moving on from there, can you talk about... A more more recently, your work at Simprint, uh, you know, maybe a success story or something that you're proud of having achieved a little bit later on during your time at Simprints? Yeah.
0: And I mean, sort of two things that happened quite recently that I'm immensely proud of. The first one is um, having enrolled, you know, having reached the 1 million people threshold uh, wow. enrolled with the Simprint system. And this was actually, it's it's now quite wow. exponential. So at this point, it's probably already 1.5, but it was um, last <laughs> December. And um huh. that was just a huge, huge feeling of accomplishment. Um yeah. to know that um something that, as I said, six years ago was just a pipeline dream and some foam models was actually making a difference to that many people. And again, that comes That's back incredible. to the point of why social enterprise and tech for tech for good can be very appealing as a career choice. Mm-hmm. Um the second one is um obviously in COVID times, I'm glad that, and this was very hard work to get there, that Simprints managed to position itself in what for me is the most important use case of the next couple of years, which is uh, COVID vaccinations by striking Mm, um, a partnership with Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance um, to help with the the verification of uh, COVID vaccine distribution, which is going to be a huge issue. I mean, we spoke about, you know, what happens in normal vaccine programs. Imagine if we waste 50% of our COVID vaccines uh, once they reach, finally reach some of the countries where they they should be going. (laughs) And yeah. so working on that and having achieved that, and it's going to start in Ghana, there was actually a press release um, last week on this, This it's huge. And I'm very glad to see that um, Simprint's future will be both financially, but especially from an impact perspective, I think be in the right place.
1: Wow, um, that's so, phenomenal. Yeah, that's something, yeah, that's awesome. With. That's incredible to hear. Sebastian, do you think now, having said that, you're saying how you're saying how fingerprint technology was an uphill battle. It wasn't really well known in the industry back uh, you know, in 2016, 2015. Would you say now it's become a little bit more mainstream?
0: The challenge I see with biometrics going mainstream is that there are many stakeholders who have an incentive not to use biometrics. <laughs> and what yeah. I mean with that is you have funders who obviously want the use of unique IDs because they can prove value for money. They know what's happening in the programs. They are safer from, you know, the Daily Mail writing, writing a piece about their failed project. So that's great. And they are definitely fully behind this and going for it. But then you have, frankly, a lot of governments and NGOs running programs that claim to achieve certain things. But I can tell you black and white, no program Simprints has ever worked in. Has not had a significant percentage of um, at least you know misallocated activities fund services, whatever it is mm. um, and so these program managers or government officials know that, but biometrics huh. would prove would prove it and put it black on white and now if you're progressive, huh. you can be like okay. I'll do this and I'll show that we know what's happening, we're willing to do something about it and we're leading the way. And there are some policymakers and government officials like this. Right. But most that I've encountered in many places don't want to see that. And so- um oh, interesting. That, and that's what I think is going to be the biggest hurdle in the uptake of any technology that's going to increase transparency in our yeah. sector when you have so many people benefiting from the lack of transparency.
1: Yeah, ultimately- just to call out what you're talking about, corruption is not something that technology alone is going to solve. You know, like if there is something that makes things more visible, then there's always going to be someone that's hiding behind, you know, that's hiding in the place that used to be invisible. So it's not just about throwing a fingerprint scanner or or a face scanner (laughs) or a smartphone at it. Uh, There's got to be something else that's driving that change. And as you pointed out, often it's a policymaker. Or, you know, someone someone in a position of power that needs to very loudly and publicly make that commitment to change. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Sebastian. I'd love to dive into our rapid fire questions. The first question for you, Sebastian, is if you have any advice for young professionals, people who are trying to do some good in the world and thinking maybe technology will help them do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, especially for young professionals, I would just advise to optimize as much as possible for, for growth and for learning. Um, You know, if you're planning a long career in the sector or even do switches like I did, you're still best off picking an organization where you're going to pick up a lot of experiences, information, technical knowledge quickly. Um, So just uh, go more for that than for maybe the highly accredited, reputable organization where you're going to be stuck in an office and not learn enough.
1: Nice. Yeah. Nice. I recently learned a a term from the 80,000 hours folks called career capital. Which I hadn't occurred to me before, but there is something about like you know the way that same way you save up money, saving up expertise and skills so that you can do whatever you want with it later in life. Would you like to offer a kudos or shout out to another mover or shaker in this field?
0: Yeah, one uh, long-time peer and um, of mine that I really look up to, um, Erica Leia, the CEO of Dietree. Um, Dietree International uh, is another sort of you know tech for deaf company working in global health. And what I really admire about her is that she brings. She worked initially for many years on the programmatic side, and mm. then increasingly started to focus more on the bigger picture on the strategic side. And as a result, she's been able to position her organization to kind of fill a gap in implementation expertise that I think is, hmm. is just so needed, because otherwise you get all these consortia where there's nobody who is actually connecting the dots between technology huh. and implementation. And huh. um, so yeah, I think she's doing great work. She's also a great human being. So a uh, big That's shout
1: awesome. out to her. Awesome. Great to hear. On the reading side, is there a resource you use to stay up to date with what's going on in this industry?
0: I mean, obviously, because I've kind of left the industry, (laughs) um, I'll give a two-part answer. The first one is when I was still in the industry, (laughs) Hmm. I really liked the New Humanitarian, both Hmm. their blog and their podcast. And because it just brings that dose of skepticism and scrutiny, including on biometrics, you know, they had some pieces on us that were not favorable. But I think it's (laughs) you need that and um so i'm a big fan of them and for people who are more interested maybe also in digital identity more broadly and self-sovereign identity sort of the future of identity um i can really recommend uh the identity woman newsletter uh kalia young or identity woman uh she puts together a fantastic weekly newsletter with um showing a lot of interesting stuff of where identity is going. Um, so yeah,
1: that's the other fascinating, one. fascinating. Also, respect to you for calling out new humanitarian, even though they had some episodes that did not paint simprints favorably. I think that <laughs> you know that takes some courage, but it's it's also how we learn, you know it, it's yeah. by having those people yell at you and critique you that there's one approach which is to shut it down and the other is to listen and to learn. Um and so I appreciate you you calling them out um despite things they may have said. Last question, Sebastian, just for fun. If you could recommend a book, blog, or podcast uh, from personal interest, yeah,
0: I wouldn't say that this is necessarily fun, but it's been <laughs> it's been sort of the the two books that have inspired me most to work in the sector. Um, and uh, the first one is more theoretical, but is a classic. Amartya Sen's uh, Development as Freedom, mm. um, and that really has shaped my view of what development actually is and should be. And great, the really. second one is uh, Tracy Kidder's Mountains Beyond Mountains, which depicts oh. the story of Paul Farmer and how he founded and drove him to uh, found Partners in Health. And for me, that's just a story of uh, human will and tenacity and uh, fight for social justice
1: that I find incredibly inspiring. I love, love, love that book.
0: Yeah, it's great. Excellent choice. Those two I would, <laughs> I would add to the mix.
1: If anyone listening to this podcast wants to find out more about you, is there any particular resource or place online that you'd point them to?
0: The place where I probably hang out most online uh, is uh, LinkedIn. Um, So just Hmm. find me there, Sebastian Manhart. Uh, I also occasionally use Twitter, but probably less, Seb Manhart. (laughs) So yeah, uh, better to find me on LinkedIn.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so much, Sebastian. I really appreciate your time. If you'd like to hear more about Sebastian's work or just generally learn more about digital ID and some of the issues and recommendations around it, check out our show notes at aidevolved.com. And if you have any comments or feedback, don't hesitate to reach out on Twitter at aidevolved or via email at podcast at aidevolved.com. We'll see you next time.